Hi. Okay. <laughs> so I literally used to be anxious 80, 90% of the time. I wasn't able to be in a romantic relationship, at least in person, for like more than five or six months. And I was kind of in this perpetual state of burnout until I found this somatic, these somatic tools. I started applying them to my own life. They were so life-changing that I got certified in it. And I'm kind of obsessed because now, you know, I'm probably still anxious 20, 30% of the time, but I I know what to do and my capacity to feel it and not get overwhelmed is just so different. Um, I'm in a 2.5 plus and counting amazing romantic relationship. I still sometimes go into burnout, but it's so much less like somatics fucking changed my life. <laughs> so I'm obsessed with it and I'm an evangelist. I even when I like before I was certified, I was like telling everyone to go do core energetics, which is the kind of somatics I'm certified in. And I want to get it into the hands of as many people as possible because it was so life-changing for me. So the program I studied in is a four-year program and still exists. There's one in New York. There's one that I get to teach in and help out at in Montreal, the Montreal Institute of Core Energetics. But for coaches, healers, therapists, folks who want to add some advanced somatic tools to your repertoire, but you don't necessarily want to do a a full year, a four-year program, I am introducing the Advanced Somatic Technique Certification. (laughs) Um, It's a six-month program where you'll learn these tools, you'll, you'll get them into your own cells, because the best way to learn these techniques is to get them into your own cells, but you'll also learn how to apply them for clients, they're super effective for anxiety. You can even work with trauma without talking about the trauma um, because it's stored in our cells and our nervous system. So you will get everything you need to start using them with your clients. So if you're interested in that, be sure to head over to brinbamber.com and you'll learn everything you need to know. Okay. Sending you all the best vibes, and let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Trauma-Informed Witch Podcast, where we'll talk about patriarchy, mental health, creating money and abundance, and how to live a life that feels rich and that is rich. Let's go. Hi, everybody. I am super excited today because I have my friend, Sean Roney, on the podcast. And what we're going to be talking about is working with neurodiverse clients and how to support them to the best of 
your ability. And we're also going to talk a little bit about Sean's story and how she got into business and all, all the things. But um, Sean, why don't you start by introducing yourself to everyone? Sure. Hi, I'm Sean Roney. I uh, have a coaching business, Revealed Path Life Coaching. I work with women who have neurodivergent brains or what I've termed ADHD tendencies. So diagnosis doesn't matter. It's more about um, the tendencies that are showing up and appearing. And let's see, I've been doing coaching for about five years now. Uh, love it. Love the creativity of the people that I work with. Lots of entrepreneurial brains as well. Yeah, awesome. Well, why don't we start with, um, you know, I'm just curious. I don't think I know your whole story. Like, what was your career before you were a coach? How did you find coaching? What drew you to it? Like, how did you how did you become the coach for women with ADHD tendencies? Yeah. So I had a very divergent path to coaching, which makes sense now in hindsight, right? I'm like, oh, it all fits together. Um, like the long and short of it is I was a serial entrepreneur. I majored mm. in child development, early childhood education. Uh, I noticed a lot of children that struggled even back then, right? I was in that um, industry for 15 years and was worked as a director and would notice like teachers that had challenges with children in classrooms. And my perspective at that time was always like, let's look at the environment. Let's see, like, it's not the child's problem, right? It's not their fault. We need to look at the environment and see how it's impacting them and affecting them and take responsibility for supporting them to the best of our ability. So I think that's the lens that I started with. And then after that, owned a number of businesses, um, everything from a dance studio, like literally a brick and mortar dance studio, a furniture repurposing business with a business partner. We had a shop and a location. Uh, I did baby sign language. I had friends I would run into and what they would always say, like, what are you up to now? Like, what are you <laughs> up to these days? And I was kind of like, huh. They're like, it's so cool. You're always doing something different. At one point I had a website called Variety, the Spice of Life uh, <laughs> because I tried to embrace the fact that I was a Jane of all trades and had many interests. Still didn't quite know what was going on. Um, I had gone back and talked to my middle school as a presenter with a group of peers and we all brought presentations to help support middle schoolers. And my topic was, it's okay to not know what you wanna be when you grow up because I didn't. And I was like, you know, 40. Yeah. And so I think as far as like what brought me here, uh, when I was 40, I, my son was in middle school and we were looking at kind of what was going on with him and attentions type of things. And as his doctor was talking about uh, ADHD and some of the tendencies, my brain just lit up. I was like, oh, like this kind of sounds like me. I could relate to so much of what he said. And I think that was the first little like, oh, there might be something to this. And then I started Googling and then I got a coach, an ADHD coach specifically mm. at that time. It was about 12 years ago. And 
I was diagnosed inattentive ADHD. So for those people that don't know, there's three types mm-hmm. right now. Um, and so the first type, the prime, like I won't say primary type, but the first type, the type that often people are most co- like most familiar with is hyperactive impulsive. And so that, I mean, you imagine 12 year old boy, it's kind of the, the vein that, you know, ADHD came out of and it's expanded, but like the kid that has so much energy, can't sit still, always bouncing in the classroom, can't keep their hands to themselves. Um, Lots and lots and lots of energy and lots of impulsivity. That's the first type. The second type is inattentive. Um, And inattentive, think like daydreamy girl in the classroom, kind of her mind floats off while the teacher's talking. I'm being very stereotypical because this is just uh, like what we used to think right back in the day. Either gender, doesn't matter. You can be diagnosed with any type. So I just want to make that really Mm -hmm. clear. My son was also (laughs) diagnosed, I want to say inattentive type as well. Mm. And then there's combined type where you have a little bit of both. Mm. You have that impulsivity, hyperactivity, and you have the inattentive type of symptoms. Um, And so that's, I think when I discovered my diagnosis, started working with a coach actually ended up doing some work for that coach. And then when she opened a certification program, I ended up going through her ADHD certification program to help others like me. Oh, cool. Okay. And then you went to the life coach school sometime later down the line. Yes. And then about seven years later, uh, 2018, I was certified through the life coach school. Mm -hmm. It really connected the dots between like executive function challenges and how much mindset, which is what I learned in life coach school can really have an impact. It can exacerbate symptoms or help dial them down. Right. Right. Yeah. So everyone listening, Sean is double certified. (laughs) And also I have so many thoughts about being certified, right? I'm like, Oh, it's fantastic. And so many people helping the world in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't need a certification to help people. Totally. I think that's true too. Yeah. So, so you basically found out your ADHD through your son in some kind of way. I did. Yeah. And that's really common because there is a genetic component. So like Mm. if a parent or a child or a grandparent has some of the tendencies, there can be a genetic component. And so um, it makes sense now in hindsight as well. Mm-hmm. So if someone thinks, you know, you did this like very brief description of the different types, but if someone thinks that they might have ADHD, what are some kind of some of the things they could look out for or just can you can you name a couple of the things that are kind of common if someone's listening to this and thinking, oh, maybe I did daydream a lot as a kid or I was super hyperactive as a kid. Yeah. So absolutely. I will just kind of preface it by saying tendencies, like they're on a scale, right? So all of us to some extent will experience these tendencies at one time or another. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about it actually being a diagnosis, which you need to get through a prescriber or a doctor, um, it's happening more often every single day and really Mm -hmm. impacting your day-to-day living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, are, but, it's, but it's like every single, you know, diagnosis, like even things that are super stigmatized, like 
bipolar disorder or that kind of thing. Like we all have some of those tendencies. It's just, are we, you know, here where we're at a point where we're having them all the time or are we more in the middle or are we super low on, in terms of those tendencies? So that's good to remember because I somehow, that like opened up a pocket in my brain. It's like, it's not like you're ADHD or you're not. It's just like, how often is this happening? And then at a certain point you could get diagnosed if you wanted to, but you don't necessarily need a diagnosis. Absolutely. Unless, unless there's some, some reason that you do. Yeah. It's up to each individual to decide like how much their life is being impacted and if they feel like that might be helpful or not. Um, so some of the things that you would maybe be experiencing would be like extreme overwhelm, like um, an inability, like trouble with either starting tasks or trouble finishing tasks or trouble maintaining your attention, sustaining attention is the term all the way through a task. Um, something else that you might see is struggles around time management, right? So time is experienced a little bit differently in a neurodivergent brain. So rather than like past, present, future, moving through time in a linear fashion, time is much more circular and there's almost like a switch. So it's like, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. Oh, wow. Now, rather than like, it's, you know, I'm approaching the time when something's due, I'm moving through that time, and then it's going to come to a completion. It's just a, so a propensity to maybe run behind off schedule, um, late struggle with getting places on time. Time is a construct. So it makes sense. Like not everyone would experience it the same way but just noticing in the linear world of time, the way the world has been kind of set up and we've agreed that it works, uh, struggling with that. Maybe you end up putting strategies in place. So you, you get to appointments really, 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 really early right. for fear that you might be late or you get to the airport really, 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 really early because you just don't trust your time, right? The way you experience time. Um, what else? Organizing, planning. So like the ability to break things down into chunks and then like prioritize like what, what you want to do first, then next, then next can feel really challenging. And it feels almost like everything is of equal priority. And so how can I possibly decide what, mm. what the thing to start with is? So it can create this, this real feeling of uh, indecision. So indecisiveness will show up a lot and it's often tied to this uh, struggle around prioritizing things. Mm -hmm. um, it can show up in spaces, like keeping spaces organized. Often people with neurodivergent brains are very visual. So the piling system is common. If you're a person that piles and you have piles around you, it's a visual organizing system. And so it's common and actually supports your brain in many ways. Mm -hmm. Is it a, is that a, a helpful strategy if you are a visual person? It kind of makes sense. I mean, I guess you could do like cubbies or something. So it's not just like a, a mound on your bed. Yeah, I don't know that I would call it a strategy, but I would say if your brain is doing that, like to allow that to happen because it's doing it for a reason, 
and then maybe look for if, if there if you have a problem with the piles right like if you're just thinking they're all over I can't yeah. it's becoming yeah. too much then absolutely find it let's find a strategy or system that's going to work a little bit better but probably the reason it's happening is because your brain is visual and like out of sight out of mind so that's my brain very much works that way if something the specific example I remember is I was bringing a dish to like a pot, like barbecue thing back in 2018. It was probably was right. And, uh, I didn't want to forget to make it two days before it was like, make it, have it ready. So I had the pan and I left it in the middle of the dining room table just cause I passed it every day. I would see it. It was like, oh yeah, gotta, gotta remember to do that. Well, you know, Someone came along in my home and put it away behind a cabinet, totally forgot it. Not making it, but it was like last minute, like, oh, shoots, I need to remember to do that. And I realized in that moment, the reason I leave things sometimes out is because it's a visual cue, visual reminder of something I want to make sure to get done. Mm -hmm. So it's not always convenient for everyone else in your household, but it's good to know there is a reason that you're doing it. Your brain is doing it. It's not just because you're trying to be difficult or you don't like to follow rules or whatever it is. Right. Mm -hmm. There's a functional yeah. reason behind it. Maybe. Yeah. What are the gifts of someone who has like maybe more ADHD tendencies? Like what are the things that are amazing about this kind of a brain? Yeah. I would say like one of the main ones is innovation and out of the box thinking. Right. So a lot of your innovators, a lot of your, um, people that need to be really creative and create something from nothing, basically, you're going to find that type of energy from the out-of-the-box thinking. Like coming up, the ability to make seemingly random connections between bits of information to come up with like a wildly new solution is a, is a huge gift of neurodivergent thinking. Also, uh, I, a neurodivergent brain is as different as the one next to it. So they're not all similar. So really each person, each one has their, their unique areas that are specific to them and the ability to hyper-focus and go deep with those areas, no matter what it is, it's going to, it's going to vary from person to person, but just really realizing what it is for you and embracing that. And then the ability to take it to a level where many people wouldn't have the tolerance or the patience or the interest to take it is a huge gift. Um, I would say sensitivity is, is a great gift. There's two sides to every coin. So what can feel like emotional dysregulation, hypersensitivity can also be a gift in that there can be like an ability to really sense how an animal is feeling or connect with nature, connect with an animal, connect with a child, um, unspoken communication. I think that can be a real gift interpersonal communications can be enhanced. Also, it can be challenged depending on the person, right? So executive function challenges show up in different ways in different people. Mm -hmm. Is it with the hypersensitivity, is it like, can you sometimes sense that something's off with somebody? Like if they're not trustworthy, is it that kind of thing too? I'm just curious, or is it more just like how people are doing? I would say yes. I, I don't know what science would say, right? right? But my answer to that is yes. It ranges from being really particular to the type of fabric or the type of sheets that you use or like the tags in your shirts. That is a type of hypersensitivity mm -hmm. to sound 
So like watching a movie with someone who like chews really loud and like being hypersensitive to that for other people. Oh, the Zumba started the other day in the middle of a call. And I was like, or Roomba. I would keep calling oh. it Zumba, the Roomba. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. And it's like, oh my gosh, that noise is super distracting. My brain could not focus on anything, but this little robot vacuum moving around. Yeah. So that's, but then, yes, I think it also comes with almost like a spidey sense mm -hmm. that you can learn to develop, but it's there naturally. I think it's there actually with most humans, but especially so with a neurodivergent person Yeah, because they have these other levels of sensitivity. It kind of, it just makes sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it can be like kind of the canary in the mine, in the coal mine type of thing, where maybe you are sensing something's off before other people. Yes. And then balancing it with like not making assumptions, right? Because we may sense something's off, but we really don't often know why. Like, mm -hmm. so that's a, that's a big distinction. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So for folks who maybe don't identify as neurodivergent, or maybe they have like a couple of these things, but you know, like two out of 10 or something are resonating. They're on, they're on the further away, kind of the part of the spectrum. What are some things that we can do to be inclusive to neurodivergent folks? in our practices and our businesses, like what are some things to kind of think about or consider? Yeah, I think just um, a there have an awareness that there are different brain types and like neurologically they are different. Like there's a neurological basis between a neurotypical brain and a neurodivergent brain. So even just knowing that that's the case can be helpful. Um, I think it can be tricky again, because every person's different, but if someone were to approach you or bring it up or share it with you, I think just asking like, what is the way, like what, in what ways can I be the most supportive for you? What is most, the most helpful thing, right? Mm -hmm. Because there, there can be like accommodations is the word, which I actually am just like language is so important. And I feel like a whole switch around language needs to happen from like the name of ADHD, which is attention deficit hyperactivity right. disorder. As opposed to just like brain work, this brains work this way or this way. It's like yes. one or the other, as opposed to like, this one is bad. Yeah. Yes. And we're not there yet. But even when I say the word accommodations, every time I say it, I'm like, oh, it makes it sound like this type of brain needs to be accommodated. To right. It's this. the and bad like, kind of brain. Yeah. 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 But it is the language we have right now. But I think just at, like there are things that are where like mm, some people need a, a quiet buzz in the background of their environment. Other people need zero noise. So head wearing headphones is really helpful for some people to block out all sounds. Um, other people can be really visually distracted. So like allowing them to like call in or participate in a call audio only versus like on screen can be really helpful. Um, just like recognizing people might have different sensitivities around things like that. Different, and it's, it goes beyond different comfort levels. Like really it's how can you best support them so, so that you're like optimizing and supporting their brain's ability. And it really doesn't have, like you might think it has to do with, oh, they just don't wanna be seen 
right? They're doing something back there. They're, they're not paying attention. They're going to be doing something besides participating. And it's like, no, actually, they maybe just need to cut out all the visual stimulation so they can really hear and focus and -hmm. realizing that both are possible. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think asking is really important. Yeah, it's funny. This is actually bringing up something for me. So I had a diversity, equity, and inclusion expert kind of just audit different parts of my business. And one thing she audited was my intake form. And I added some questions. I kind of changed, you know, I had kind of one of those classic intake forms that was like, what's your relationship with your mom and your dad, as opposed to like acknowledging that not everyone has a mom and a dad and, you know, there are different caregiver kind of configurations and adding some questions about, you know, the experience of the patriarchy or white supremacy or, you know, all of these things, but I'm, this is kind of bringing up for me, maybe it might be helpful to add a question around accommodations or finding a better (laughs) word for that, but to say, yeah, do you identify as neurodivergent? Is there anything I need to know about that? Is there anything that can support you in our sessions? Yeah. That to kind of add those questions right at the beginning. And then it, it's already, you know, for me anyways, and anyone else who does an intake process, it's already kind of built in. And so you don't have to remember, like for me, I don't have to remember to kind of ask or bring it up. And the person doesn't have to self-advocate either. They don't have to say, hey, like I'm this and I need this, you know, to just kind of build it in to the structure. So that's super helpful. Yes. And it might come out, it might take time to come out, right? Because there is a lack of trust around the system when it comes to revealing um, coming out in a way, right. As like your brain type and who you are, because morally there has been a tendency to really highly value, uh, qualities like punctuality and extreme productivity and all the things like, which also is like, uh, you know, a result of a lot of systemic conditioning, yeah. And so I think just realizing it might take some time for that to come out. It's funny, I was just knowing kind of what you speak to. I had given some thought around um, ADHD and just the trauma around it. Yeah. And what's interesting about it, and I think it ties into what we were just talking about, is that it's like, it's unknown. I think a lot of time there's just a lack of awareness. Yeah. But what happens then is it's like, a daily, sometimes hourly re-traumatizing from like birth through like the point at which you realize what's kind of going on. And not only is everyone around you doing it unknowingly, unintentionally, because it hasn't been talked about, but you then end up doing it to yourself because when you look at all these different education, workplace, family, you're like, what's the common denominator oh, me. So let me fix me. And I think that can be a mindset that many people then go into like, let me fix this problem of me. Right. So it's like ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. So I think when someone shows up and they're not real clear on this is what I need. And this is, yeah, of course it, it takes, you know, 
probably a lifetime totally. to unpack some of that. Totally. And I think there's parallels to like coming out of the closet as being queer, you know, like I identify as pansexual and it's been a whole journey of going in and out of the closet because of, you know, biphobia and all the things that come with that identity. And yeah, and so it's like, do you want to disclose or not? You know, if you know, and then sometimes you don't know. Yes. So to kind of um, take the time, but what the, the idea I like about putting it on the intake form is it kind of says, I'm open to talking about this, even if they don't know what it is and and they don't realize it or they or they aren't feeling safe to disclose. Absolutely. And know that like there isn't a tiny bit of awareness, even if it's not a full awareness and there's an openness to figuring out what will work. Yeah. Absolutely. For the person. And I think that is so true too. It's kind of like the parallels I'm thinking of are like internalized homophobia or like internalized, you know, like patriarchy or white supremacy or whatever all of these systems of oppression that impact marginalized folks um you know it's like oh yeah i must be unorganized or i must not be thoughtful because i'm late or whatever <laughs> all of these thoughts whereas i'm i'm kind of seeing how the mindset piece is super important too right for the work that you do yes with because the thoughts and beliefs they typically come with are the ones that they have obtained based on the conditioning that they've been surrounded by right so it's like let's like look at that through a little bit different lens and really understand what's been happening and then let's let's look at how you want to choose to think about it are you like open to the possibility that it's not you yeah, it's maybe like the way we've all been kind of thinking that is impacted. Yeah, and just like the way the world is set up right now, which I, I'm reading this book called Do Nothing by Celeste Headley, I think. And it's all about how like work didn't used to be hourly. It didn't used to be as like by the clock, like and and by the hour and it used to be like work used to be like you make a pair of shoes and then I pay you for the pair of shoes and however long it takes and whatever time you start and whatever time you end, you know, that used to be kind of the norm for work. And, you know, if you're a farmer in the summer, you work more and then in the winter you look le work less and you rise with the sun and you kind of have this visual reminder that the sun's up or the sun's down and it was really like the, the steam engine and then factories subsequently that have created this like kind of obsession with time or this society that's very time focused and how many hours and are you late or are you on time mentality so it's interesting to just even think about that and yes and how that you know that was created for like people working in factories 
to try to get the most out of people in factories and like is that even helpful right now absolutely like i'm just thinking about that and i don't you know when you listed the the neurodiverse characteristics i identify with a couple of them but the majority i don't so i don't you know i don't think adhd is i'm super strong in that area but um you know i'm even thinking about like time and 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 our obsession with it and just like do how do i want to relate to this thing and how do i want to relate to work and yes and i I think what happens is for a neurodivergent person there tends to be like if we're looking at a bell curve when it comes to like tolerating conditions or tolerating situations often someone who has a neurodivergent brain will kind of get in that factory situation or present day Mm -hmm. work life is kind Mm -hmm. of become the new factory right with the totally and they will then fall this side of the bell curve on like tolerating conditions and like overworking because they're trying to overcompensate Mm. for what they maybe believe are their deficiencies their imagined deficiencies is the Mm. way I like to talk about it and employers often will see that and through a lack of awareness take advantage of it I mean sometimes intentionally sometimes not right but I think just knowing there's this tendency to like overwork to try to make up for the slipperiness of time to try to like over deliver for what they think is maybe wrong and mm-hmm. how they don't measure up to their coworkers. All of that is just really good to be aware of. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm kind of seeing, I don't know, like I keep seeing these parallels between like, I think that's also common around folks socialized as women because they're kind of, you know, not listened to as much. And when they try to speak up in the meeting, they're not heard or even, you know, there have been all these little experiments where a man and a woman change email signatures and just like the intense impact of whether your name appears to be <laughs> female or male. Totally has happened with me. Assumption oh yeah. Around a name, right? So it's so fascinating to like catch different reactions. Yeah. And yeah. so it seems like this is kind of on par, you know, with a bunch of other different marginalized identities where it's like, or like you have to work twice as hard to be half as good and all of these kind of adages or, or things that are documented by research as well. It's not just like folklore. It's like, if you're from a marginalized group, you work harder to still be valued and you know um mariko gordon who i've had on the podcast before and she's a money genius and she worked in um i don't know managing billions of dollars of money whatever that's called (laughs) she worked like investing like venture capitalism or yeah, yeah, in the financial industry, I, I think it was like um, people's like retirement funds and stuff and investing those. Yeah. But, you know, she 
was saying that corporate America in some ways is like run. It's like so profitable because of all, you know, and she was talking about women, but I would kind of extend it to all marginalized groups that are overworking and getting underpaid and not asking for raises and all of these things, which allows there to be, which is one piece of the puzzle, right? It's not the only. Yes, absolutely. Piece, piece of the puzzle, but it's one piece of why, you know, there are these super rich folks at the top sometimes, or, or these corporations making a lot of money and then but the employees maybe not all getting properly compensated. So yes. interesting to think about how all of these things fit together. Yeah, so parallel. And like um, the intersectionalism of like sexism, racism, right. genderism, ableism. So, right. you know, if you have someone coming who has like stacks, like, right, seriously, like some are, you know, black, female, neurodiverse. Yeah. I mean, however they identi identify, like some have, you know, four or five stacks deep when it comes to oppression. Um, yeah. It's just, uh, yeah, good to be aware of. Yeah, and it's going to exacerbate that. And yeah. so I guess like kind of the takeaway for folks listening is to try and be aware of that too when you're working with clients because we can kind of become the employer. We're not, right? But I mean, some of us are, and that's a whole nother conversation. If you are hiring staff and you have a neurodiverse staff, this, this is important to be aware of too, or, or someone who has a, an oppression stack. Um, but to kind of be aware that there is a power dynamic with us and our clients, even when they're, you know, paying us and we're the service provider in some way that, that this might be happening to a degree there too. And to just try to, as best we can, to keep an eye for it. And if someone says some, you know, if someone is advocating, if one of our clients or students are advocating for something to, to take it seriously and to not just automatically think, oh, this person is late, it means they aren't committed to my program or whatever, you know, ableist thoughts I think a lot of us have and that are kind of just, we're all, you know, it's like we're all raised in white supremacy and a patriarchy and an ableist land. So we kind of grew up getting our brains programmed by all these yeah. different thoughts. And so to start to be aware as best you can when you are thinking those thoughts and yeah, you know, to, to say like, we all have it, right? We all have all of the oppressive thoughts, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, like depending what decade you grew up on, grew up in you maybe have more of one kind or more of another but we grew up in this when our brains were programmed you know when our brains were super plastic and absorbing everything we got some you know toxic input and so it's there for all of us but to to start to be aware as best we can 
Yes. What would you say are like the top ableist thoughts about like neurodiverse folks so that like we can, you know, I think it might be helpful to like sp speak them out so that we can be like, oh, that's one of them. Yeah. Like, like late people don't care or late people are unprofessional or something like that. Right. Disrespectful. I saw this on like one of the, you know, a really large one who was an author who has a really large following. And one day there was a post and it was a little mini rant, like a Instagram reel about not letting people disrespect you and what wow. it looks like. And literally called out, you know, that friend that's never on time and doesn't respect your time. And like, I was like, Ooh, instantly a little, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, you know, uh, Instagram warrior ninja jumped on. Good. And like, hey, by the way, like, it's not always this. And I've right. actually like, I've experienced like losing the friendship, um, because someone thought it was, I was intentionally being disrespectful. And this was, you know, around time back in the day, lots going on, also a parent of young children, commuting, many things. Um, but it just felt like a lack of, under, like a misunderstanding that I just couldn't explain. And so it was like, okay, like respect each other's boundaries, right? And it, but ultimately what it came down to was this belief that anytime someone's late, they're being disrespectful of your time and that's their intention. They just don't respect you. And it's like, okay. which is all actually like, I think rarely the actual cause of so, of so many things, right? In friendships that can come between people, but it's like, usually it's about the person. It's not about you, whether yeah. it's, you know, they have a different kind of brain than you have, or, you know, their kid got sick or whatever, <laughs> you know, it's like, if, I mean, it's like, I guess for me, it's kind of like the metric is like, are they like, quote unquote, disrespecting you in a bunch of different areas? Or if it's, are they super kind, super generous, like willing to listen when you have a problem, but they run late, you know, here and there? Yes. Like what's the value exchange, right? So like, is it valuable enough that like this you can just be curious about and maybe ask questions, right? Take that curiosity approach and like move towards trying to hear more and understand and learn mm -hmm. someone else's perspective versus making assumptions. So I think time assumptions are like a huge area mm -hmm. when it comes to ableist thoughts. I have an example, just assumptions in general. And this is, this was one that I actually noticed in my own practice. Um, mm -hmm. I use the tool, the model, and we look at, you know, thoughts and feelings mm -hmm. and all of that. Mm -hmm. And I noticed with a number of my clients, they really had a hard time, like identifying the feeling a lot of them, not a problem. And for me, not so much a problem identifying the feeling. Uh, and over time it was like, I noticed with, you know, a pretty solid number of them. When I would ask the feeling, it was like good or bad. Yeah. And like, if we dug a little deeper under it, they're really, they were like, mm, good. That, that feels pretty good. It would go from good to pretty good to like, mm -hmm. oh, I think it's good. And I'm like, okay, feeling vocabulary. So we would try to use the chart and look at the different feelings. And it was like, still couldn't really connect, like uncertain. And I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, let me Google what this is. Alexithymia. Like there is a condition where people actually have trouble knowing what the feeling is in their body, identifying it. And then also there's a, um, a situation where they are labeling it incorrectly. So what they are thinking is 
anger in reality is frustration. And it's, it has to do with like the way their brain is wired and experiences mm. emotion. But my assumption that like people can identify a feeling, right? If mm-hmm. I just dig enough or ask enough questions, mm-hmm. was it was a ableist belief, honestly? It was like, because mm-hmm. I can, I assume mm-hmm. everybody can. Mm-hmm. And so I don't hold on so tightly to that now when someone is like, yeah, good. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Tell me some more thoughts about it. And like, it'll all come tumbling out or often they'll tell me, I feel like they'll leave a thought with, I feel like when I ask for the feeling. Mm -hmm. And so that's fine. We just go with that. We go with all the thoughts, right? We, we collect those and we go with good or bad and which one, how does it feel in their body? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like I have never heard of alexithymia, so I'm excited to learn about a new thing and also you know Brené Brown just put out a book Atlas of the Heart on emotions and like your average person can name three mad sad scared so you know like I think um in my work I, I work a lot with feelings with clients and it actually is helpful to start with good or bad if they don't like I I use that or I use um, happy, mad, sad, or scared between those four, because those four are basically categories. And so once you start, like that can be a starting place, which I actually recently had someone who is neurodiverse say that was super helpful for them to just have they said they get overwhelmed sometimes when someone's just like, how do you feel? What emotion? And so to just have like, okay, if I have to pick one of these, it yeah. feels the closest. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I started doing the, the core energetics work that I do, I think I didn't know what I was feeling at all. Yeah. So I guess it's a condition that we want to be aware of, but it's also a muscle that can be built. And maybe it can be built even if you have the condition and maybe if you have the can- condition, it's much harder to build the muscle. I don't know enough about yeah. Alexa. I sometimes am like, can we side access the feeling? And for me, that's like, comes in the form of music. So like I can right. literally control my emotions sometimes with songs, like certain songs, like, right, bring out a Same. certain feeling. So I think that's really helpful. Also like commercials or TV, like certain, I love Broadway musicals. I was thinking about this. I'm like, oh, because they have the ability to like bring out such a range of emotions. I'm not Mm -hmm. logically thinking, oh, I feel happy. I feel excited, but I can feel the the roller coaster ride of it when I'm like watching. Right. So. Yeah. Music was a tool for me when I was kind of building my emotional intelligence because I was pretty numb. I didn't know what was going on inside me. And so I knew if I was listening to Ani DeFranco, I was mad. And if I was listening to Sufjan Stevens, I was sad. Like it would literally be like I would put on different like albums in my headphones and then I'd be like, I don't want to listen to this. And then I'd be like, I want this. And then that depending on like this you know, the singer's tone or, you know, particular album. It's like, oh, I must be angry because I'm really into this. Yes. yes. Music that's kind of angry. 
So that's a super good tool too. Are there any other like kind of ableist thoughts that you can maybe, you know, speak so that we can, you know, try to notice them when they're coming up in our brains? Yeah, I think it probably has to do around like organizing, like mm. a clean desk means blank, mm. fill in the blank, mm. like be curious about that. Or like an organized space means like, what does your brain come up with? Right. Like, what do you mm -hmm. make it? What do you make those types of things mean? Mm -hmm. um, someone who is like really well emotionally regulated, like they can manage mm -hmm. their emotions. What do you make that mean? I think, I think, right. There's tendencies to believe like there's, um, there's moral judgments made around all of those things. And so I think like, what are, when, if you explore, like, what are your judgments around the way that people show up or don't show up, perform or don't perform, produce or don't produce, I think that will draw out individual ableist beliefs. Productivity. Yeah. 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 And the emotional one makes me so angry because I feel like it hits so many different things, right? Like that's trauma. A lot of times folks, which can be a part of ADHD. <laughs> yes. But like a lot of folks who have trauma are, you know, go into fight or flight more quickly because of their brain thinking they need it more often because of some things that happened. And then like women and the menstrual cycle and you know, all of the like literal hormones. And it's like, so often women are called crazy and it's like, no, it's like, you know, I'm getting my period soon and my serotonin is not as around. So I'm not as happy Yes, <laughs> as I yeah. normally am. And so it's like, there's so many, yeah, I think oppressive beliefs in so many different areas around yes. that. But. I think they're also tied to, um, oh, what was I just going to say? Tied to, it'll come back to me. Oh, like hard skills versus soft skills mm, in an mm -hmm, environment mm -hmm. and how like society really, and corporations, companies tend to really value those hard skills, whether it's like sales or like, again, really around the organizational piece of it, the structural piece of it, the staying on top of it, boss up piece of it, right? Versus those softer interpersonal skills that are really necessary in companies. I mean, you look at like client relationship management departments, they really address those types of things and how important and necessary those things are in order for the like results. There's just like, there's not a linear connection. And so they're less appreciated. And so I think just thoughts around all of that, like yeah. what is, what do we value? What, what is valued and just start to notice around you what people are valuing. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah, it gets me so on fire. All of this. <laughs> I know it's like the masculine energy is really, but, but we are actually, it's shifting, right? So now there is like a lot of talk and effort around um, divine feminine energy. And I think just different language for kind of describing the same things. 
Yeah. Um, it was strong, instinctual, motherly, interpersonal skills. Yeah. And just, yeah, the, you know, the fact that any, any profession that has mostly folks socialized as women and it just gets paid less and, and how it's like, oh, teachers, nurses, it's like, oh, we don't care about how our kids are taught or like we don't value or we don't value like most of the work that happens in a hospital, <laughs> like the, the people who carry most of the t put in the most hours with each patient and um even i i loved for castillo's episode where she interviewed her her admin assistant or and she was like i pay this woman a lot of money because if i show up at the airport and i have the wrong link to my boarding pass in my calendar like that really impacts my life. So my, you know, I'm gonna pay this person a lot of money because I want her to be amazing and she is amazing. <laughs> and, but it's just classically secretaries or assistants are not valued or, or paid, which was just so interesting. It's like so many things that we just assume are the gospel truth. <laughs> It's just like, oh, yeah, why do we not give a shit about soft skills when yeah. like, yeah, the company will fall apart. You will not make any more money or it'll be much harder if you don't have like good HR and good like mentorship of different employees and good client relations, like all of those things. And I think it's realized because people will be brought in to take care of those things, like kind of the duct tape to make sure that like it's there, but often not, not as highly valued. Yeah. And so, yeah, unfortunately. <sighs> well, if people um, are loving all of your different thoughts on this and they wanna follow you on social media, or if someone is thinking, oh, maybe I do have ADHD tendencies, or they know for sure that they do and they wanna work with you in one of your programs, how can people find you, connect with you? Yeah, so my website is revealedpath.com. And you can get information there in regards to how to work with me. I have a monthly membership program you can check out. I also have a program Coach Land. It's an experience for coaches who are neurodivergent that I'm super excited about. It's a gamified experience to help them build their businesses. Mm. So keeping in mind, it's kind of flipping the script on how a typical environment is set up and setting it up entirely with neurodivergent brains and minds. So, um, so you cool. can learn about that on my website. And then on Instagram, it's probably the place I'm at the most on social media. Sean.roni is my. Yay. My well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your, you know, years of experience in this field and your personal experience as well. And um, yeah, helping everyone be a little bit less ableist. <laughs> Yeah, got to keep spreading the word. That's it. Thank yeah. you for having me, Bryn. Super fun to talk to you. Yeah, so good. Okay, bye, everybody. Right. I'll talk to you soon.
Okay. Did you love that episode? Did you love everything we talked about? If you did and you want to learn advanced somatic techniques to use with your clients that come from an intersectional feminist lens, this is at least the only somatic certification that I know of that specifically has a component of diversity, equity, inclusion-informed somatics, um, trauma-informed somatics. So you're using these tools in the most helpful way possible for all of your clients. The advanced somatic certification is for you. It's six months. It's specifically for coaches, therapists, healers, EFT, whatever you do, (laughs) Um, if you want to add these advanced somatic tools to your toolkit, you have to check it out. You can learn more at BrynBamber.com. Somatics is the most life-changing thing I have ever done, um, applying these tools to my life. So I am obsessed. I want to get them into your hands. I want to get them to your clients because people need the shit. People need to heal. And these are some pretty deep, profound tools. So BrynBamber.com to learn more. Okay. Talk to you next time. Bye.